Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Fornova of 1495, an Italian Renaissance. Io ho deliberato di scrivere le cose accadute alla memoria nostra in Italia da poi che l'armi dei francesi, chiamate da nostri principi medesimi, cominciarono con grandissimo movimento a perturbarla, materia, per la verità e grandezza loro, molto memorabile e piena di atrocissimi accidenti. Avendo patito tanti anni l'Italia tutte queste calamità con le quali sogliono in miseri mortali, ora per l'ira giusta di Dio, Ora, dalla impietà e scelleratezze degli altri uomini, essere vestiti. I have decided to write about these events, which have occurred in Italy ever since the armies of the French, summoned by our very own princes, began to cause so much damage and commit so many atrocities. Since for so many years the people of Italy have suffered all types of calamities with which mortals are afflicted, whether by the just anger of God or because of the impiety and wickedness of mankind. So begins the Storia d'Italia, or History of Italy, a work written by the highly influential Italian historian Francesco Guicciardini, lived 1483 to 1540. In comparison with earlier times, we are blessed with a rich variety of good quality sources of information about Italy in the period leading up to and during its famous Renaissance. Another important Italian writer is the humanist historian and statesman Leonardo Bruni, who lived from around 1370 to 1444, is arguably the first modern historian. Bruni invented the three-period view of history still in popular use today, that of antiquity, middle ages, and then the modern period. In particular, we have several excellent sources on the history of Tuscany, which heavily influence our view still today of Renaissance Italy. Indeed, our idea of the Italian Renaissance and its arts comes in large measure from the Tuscan painter, architect and writer Giorgio Vasari, who lived from 1511 to 1574. Vasari wrote a series of artist biographies with a bias towards the city of Florence in his book entitled The Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors and Architects. Another influential work was A History of Florence, written in the 1520s by Niccolo Machiavelli, produced after his more famous work, The Prince. 
Still much studied today, the prince provides advice to leaders on how to rule effectively, if necessary through the use of immoral behaviour, such as dishonesty and the killing of innocents. The difference with Francesco Guicciardini is that he attempted to write not just local history, but the story of the whole Italian peninsula. For him, the main turning point was the subject of today's podcast, the French invasion of 1494 by the French king Charles VIII. A key feature of Italian politics in the Middle Ages and beyond was the political fragmentation within the peninsula. Since Roman times, no one power had ever been able to achieve any lasting dominance, leading to virtually never-ending instability. The upside was a vibrant cultural competitiveness between the various cities and states, which became an important stimulus to artistic and literary creativity. Despite their political disunity, turbulent history and consequently their diverse genetic mix, the inhabitants of the Italian peninsula had always felt a deep sense of shared community, largely originating from the heritage of ancient Rome. They read the same classical texts, all spoke languages which, despite the diversity of dialects, were all derived from the Latin of Cicero, and saw around them the same types of ruins from ancient times and in no small measure they also shared a certain sense of superiority over the barbarians from across the Alps. Such a feeling was a significant motivation behind Bruni's three-period view of history. Antiquity was the time of the greatness of ancient Rome. The so-called Dark Ages began with the fall of empire brought about by invasions of Goths, Vandals and others from across the Alps. But in the 1400s, the Italians, as they saw the Renaissance flourish around them, were proud to once again lead European civilization back into the light of a new modern era. Among the various groups which invaded Italy in the twilight of the Roman Empire, the most important were probably the Lombards, who came from the north and gave their name to the modern region of Lombardy in northwestern Italy. For two centuries they ruled in most of the peninsula, before succumbing to another group of aggressors from the north, the Franks. In the year 773, the future Emperor Charlemagne defeated the Lombards and captured their capital city, Pavia. Charlemagne and his successors allied with the papacy, who at the time had little direct influence outside Rome. His son, King Pepin, agreed to hand over conquered Byzantine territories in central Italy to the Pope. The problem was that, as a Frankish king, Pepin arguably had no right at all to make such a gift. Thus the donation of Constantine came into being, a document in which Emperor Constantine the Great was supposed to have granted to the papacy temporal as well as spiritual primacy over the Roman Empire. By the time the document was proved to be a forgery in the 15th century, it had served its purpose. Successive popes had already expanded their territories from Rome and its surroundings to include large parts of central Italy, the duchies of Perugia, Spoleto and Benevento, the March of Ancona and parts of Emilia-Romagna. This had created a thick band of territory stretching across central Italy from the Adriatic in the east to the Tyrrhenian Sea in the west. But although significant in size and power, the papal states were always more of a patchwork of alliances than one centralised polity, and so the Pope's control over them was always fragile. The Popes of the Middle Ages, fearful of being sandwiched between a greater power, did their best to prevent any one lay ruler gain hegemony over the whole Italian peninsula. They suffered some setbacks, as for example against the Normans in the Battle of Civitate, 1053, described in an earlier podcast. 
On the whole, though, they achieved this goal, and to do so were prepared to call for help from outside the peninsula, such as in 1265, when Pope Clement IV invited the French king, Charles of Anjou, to invade Italy and take control of the island of Sicily. While the geography of Italy's frontiers has done little to impede people trying to enter the peninsula, its interior has hindered invaders and natives alike from moving around very easily. This is another important reason why Italy was so politically divided in the 15th century, at the same time as their neighbours such as France and Spain were undergoing a centralisation of power into the hands of powerful kings. The Apennines, the backbone of peninsula, are a multi-layered barrier of mountains, torrents and ravines that are difficult to traverse. They have created not only an east-west divide in Italy that has been historically almost as important as that between north and south, but also hindered communication throughout the peninsula to the extent that neighbouring villages knew little about each other because they were separated by deep chasms. Also significant for the history of the peninsula is the lack of navigable rivers. Although the largest river in Italy, the Po, itself is navigable for 300 miles, at least for small craft, seasonal fluctuation disrupt its flow, as does the enormous quantity of silt it carries to the northern Adriatic. Italy's second longest river, the Tiber, is prone to flooding and is only navigable within the city of Rome, while the river Arno in Tuscany is no more useful, depending on the season, either a torrent or a mere trickle. Thus, unlike in most areas of Europe, the rivers have been able to contribute little to the growth of trade or political unity. Nevertheless, Italy grew prosperous in the 12th century, largely thanks to the Crusader movements. Italian seaports such as Pisa, Genoa, Amalfi and Venice funneled the surplus wealth of Christendom spent by northern knights seeking glory in the Holy Land and also profited from the new trade networks established in the Mediterranean. As a consequence, the city councils became more sophisticated to help administrate and regulate trade and the more successful developed a reliable coinage which came to be used throughout Europe, such as the Ducat of Venice and the Florin of Florence. As hubs of international trade, the cities enjoyed improvements in education, mathematics, reading, writing, accounting and law, leading to the creation of the University of Bologna, famous for its school of law and being often described as the first university in the world. An important consequence was the overcoming of the monopoly on education, enjoyed by the church by the new mercantile and banking class. Status began to be determined not by birth but by wealth, intelligence and one's own hard work. The cities of Italy fell into three broad categories. Firstly, major commercial centres, usually with port facilities and dominated by mercantile elites. Secondly, industrial centres producing commodities for export. And thirdly, cities which were essentially local market centres. Venice, Genoa and Pisa were examples of the first category. Milan is an inland commercial centre with a river port and a strong industrial base with something of a hybrid, while Florence was an industrial centre with strong mercantile and banking interests. At the same time, Rome became the centre of a vast ecclesiastical network which spread throughout Christendom. The city was visited by hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, eager to spend their wealth, as well as many talented individuals seeking a new job to further their careers. Rome also became very wealthy thanks to donations provided to fund crusades and by taxing local churches throughout Christendom. 
the centuries-long struggle between the papacy and the German emperors for sovereignty in Italy left a legacy where each city council was required to side with either one of these powers. If they chose the Pope, they were called the Guelphs. If the Emperor, then they were called the Ghibellines. Another way of categorising Italian cities was their political structures. From around 1250, as imperial and papal authority declined, local elites gained new powers and tried various experiments as how best to administer their territories. They drew up rules of citizenship, which conferred privileges and rights of participation in public affairs on long-term residents and property owners. They encouraged the growth of guilds to defend the interests of individual crafts, and they developed bureaucracies for the day-to-day administration of the cities and militia of citizens for its defence. To a greater or lesser extent, all city-states suffered from political instability. Where some, especially in Tuscany, were able to achieve rule by consensus and the participation of a wide number of local elites, others fell into autocracy, the rule of one single individual, for whom historians use the term signoria. The emergence of a signoria was normally the outcome of a gradual breakdown of communal institutions, the narrowing of the power base to a few individuals and the growth of factional violence. An example of a successful rule by a signoria was in Milan. Here the Visconti family acquired full control of the state and expanded their authority across the plain of Lombardy in the north of the peninsula. In 1395, Gian Galeazzo Visconti, the ruler of Milan, was rich and powerful enough to purchase for himself the title of Duke from the Emperor. In the 1300s and 1400s, Italy was divided into many different political units of varying sizes and types of rule, each with their own rivalries, so that it is difficult to put together a coherent narrative for them all. Each struggled for territory and commercial advantage, all suffering successes and setbacks along the way. In theory, the elites of Guelph cities were more likely to support their fellow Guelphs, and the Ghibellines likewise support their own. But in practice, this was not always the case. Local rulers were more conscious of the divisions, rivalries and enmities among themselves than of any common pan-Italian interest. Yet they were also acutely aware of the distinction between Italians and non-Italians, and so, if they were prepared to call on military support from outside, they risked being accused of betraying the interests of Italy. Apart from the multitude of small powers, five main powers emerged on the peninsula by 1400. The Papal States, Milan, Venice, Naples and Florence. The first two states have already been briefly described. The third, the Maritime Republic of Venice, originated from a number of communities living in the north-east of Italy in the 7th century, as described in an earlier podcast on the Fourth Crusade. Over the centuries, these communities worked together to build a highly profitable trade network, first in the Adriatic and then across much of the eastern Mediterranean. The Venetian Republic became a major European power from 1204, when during the Fourth Crusade, their main commercial rival, Constantinople, was sacked and then occupied by Latin princes. From the next century, the Venetians enjoyed the benefits of a highly lucrative trade across the eastern Mediterranean. They developed their own republican system of government, which for its time was extremely open to all its citizens, at least until 1297 when the city leaders, concerned about political instability, initiated what became known as the Serata, or Great Council Luckup, which, although supposedly a temporary measure, would end up becoming permanent. 
membership of the Greek Council of Venice, which elected the city's leader, the Doge, became hereditary, effectively locking out a former power all but a few of the leading aristocratic families. In the 14th century, the Venetians' main rival for control of trade in the eastern Mediterranean were the Genoese, with whom they were in near perpetual conflict, culminating in the War of Chioggia of 1378-1381. At one point it looked most likely that Genoese would win, but in the end the Venetians achieved a decisive victory, and Genoa was relegated permanently to a second-rate power. Venice had by then gained a large number of overseas possessions, a chain of coastal cities in the northern Adriatic, plus numerous islands as far west as Crete and Cyprus, which were known collectively as the Stato de Mar, or Domains of the Sea. After the War of Chioggia, the Venetian leadership realised that it could no longer rely for its prosperity on maritime trade alone. The Western Crusader states with whom they used to trade had fallen and showed no signs of returning. In the east was the growing threat of the Ottomans, and in the west a fast-expanding Milanese state ruled by the ambitious Visconti dynasty. Between 1404 and 1405, Venice took control by force of the neighbouring cities of Padua, Vicenza and Verona, thus entering a new stage in their history. They now became an important land power on the Italian peninsula, and so became more engaged in diplomacy with the other main Italian powers and more integrated in Italian culture. For example, the already well-established University of Padua helped the Venetians enter the cultural world of the Renaissance. The citizens of Verona, Padua and other newly occupied places were proud of their former independence and perceived the Venetians as outside oppressors. The Holy Roman Emperors were likewise displeased since Venetian gains threatened their access to Alpine passes into Italy. Indeed, both emperors and papacy had claims on newly conquered territory such as Verona and threatened Venice with retaliation. The fourth of the five major Italian powers, France will be covered more in the next episode. The fifth and final power was the Kingdom of Naples and Sicily, known to Italians as Irrenia, whose medieval history I will briefly cover in the rest of this episode. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Centered on the city of Naples, Irenio was a feudal kingdom more similar politically to northern states such as France and England and to its neighbours in north and central Italy. Easily the largest state on the peninsula, Naples spread from the island of Sicily to the south of the borders of the Papal States. Feudalism had been imposed on it by waves of invaders ever since the time of the Normans in the 11th century. It consisted of large agricultural estates ruled by the feudal nobility plagued by regular attacks from brigands because of the lack of a strong central authority. 
The capital city of Naples was one of the largest cities in Europe, and the only major settlement, its economy heavily dependent on serving the royal court. Outside the capital, there was little commerce, most subjects living off agriculture. Naples was run by a series of foreign dynasties which caused regular periods of instability in the southern part of the peninsula, an instability perpetuated by foreign princes in the north who had dynastic claims to either Naples or Sicily. In 1266, Charles of Anjou, with the help of his elder brother, King Louis IX of France and of the papacy, invaded southern Italy and took control of Naples and Sicily. But in 1282, the people of Sicily revolted against their French rulers in an event known to history as the Sicilian Vespers, and invited instead King Peter III of Aragon, who had a dynastic claim of his own. The Aragonese displaced the French from Sicily, but not from mainland, and so divided the kingdom into two. Sicily became ruled by the Aragonese and local Ghibellines, and Naples by the House of Anjou and the local Guelphs. Naples suffered more dynastic turmoil in 1382, when it was clear that her queen, Joanna of Anjou, would die without issue, leaving the urgent question of who should succeed her. Now in her 50s, Queen Joanna, writes Russell Chamberlain in his book, The Bad Popes, was widely loved and respected. Quote, she possessed a rare charm, a compound of sensuous beauty and unaffected majesty, of considerable learning and easy wit. Both Petrarch and Giovanni Boccaccio paid tribute to her and the Polish court she had inherited and maintained. In her will, Joanna named Louis, Duke of Anjou, younger brother of King Charles V of France, as her heir to become King of Naples. Her plans were undone, however, by the then-Pope Urban VI. Queen Joanna probably expected Urban as a fellow Neapolitan to be a good ally. Instead, Urban's misjudgments and irascible behaviour damaged not only Naples, but also the papacy itself, leading to a long-term schism within the Catholic Church. Bern Bartolomeo Prignano in central Italy, Urban had worked before he was Pope in the Palace of Avignon, in the period when the papal court was in that French city. As Vice-Chancellor to the papacy, he developed a reputation as someone with a good head for business, spending the church's money frugally and wisely, in sharp contrast to many of his extravagant colleagues. Prignano burnt with resentments at the decadence of the papal court, and how its members exploited church funds for their own personal gain. As he was not a cardinal, Prignano probably had no expectation of ever becoming Pope, and only did so through extraordinary circumstances. In 1377, Pope Gregory XI made the unexpected decision to return to the papal court from Avignon to the city of Rome despite great resistance from the French. Gregory not only strongly believed Rome was the spiritual home of the Pope, but was concerned that if he did not return, then the papacy would lose control of the territories of the Papal States. Once the citizens of Rome had their Pope back, they were determined to keep him there. When Gregory IX died in March 1378, a Roman mob surrounded the papal conclave to demand one of their own be elected. Under pressure from the mob and deeply divided among themselves, the cardinals hastily chose Vice-Chancellor Prignano as a compromised candidate. By choosing a non-cardinal, they probably expected a compliant individual who could bring some stability to the divided court. They got the exact opposite. Reports of several contemporaries indicate the power immediately went to the new Pope's head. 
Urban VI, opening address to the Cardinals, writes Russell Chamberlain, quote, was not merely violent, but personally abusive, spitting up bile accumulated over years of inferiority. Each Cardinal was singled out for attack, his lust for power, his scandalous wealth, based on simony, his immorality, his neglect of duties, each was upbraided in language drawn from the slum, end quote. Urban yelled abuse not only at the cardinals, but at foreign dignitaries, including ambassadors from his compatriot, Queen Joanna of Naples, who were sent to congratulate him. The cardinals had soon had enough, declared their decision invalid on grounds of being under duress, and elected instead a Frenchman, who gave himself the title of Clement VII. In response, the Italians rose in armed revolt. Clement and the French cardinals fled to Naples, where they were given temporary refuge by Queen Joanna, and then returned to Avignon, where Urban created a number of Italian cardinals. Had Pope Urban VI possessed the slightest sense of diplomacy or common sense, he could have consolidated his position and prevented a schism. Avignon would have quickly enough dwindled into a shadow court once Europe became aware that Urban held the sacred city, secure in the support of Italians. But he was furious at Queen Joanna for giving refuge to Clement, and retaliated by declaring invalid her will passing on her crown to Louis, Duke of Anjou. Urban looked about for an alternative heir, and decided on another Prince of Anjou, Charles of Durazzo, Reweaving, as put by Russell Chamberlain, quote, that tangled Angevin net which was strangling southern Italy, end quote. Charles of Durazzo agreed to undertake a crusade against Joanna in return for the Neapolitan crown and for handing a number of territories to a nephew of Urban VI. In 1381, he invaded Italy and besieged the city of Naples. In characteristic generosity, Joanna gave shelter to all who desired it in her castle, and as a result, food failed. She surrendered at last to Charles, throwing herself at his mercy. Charles was in general a man of principle, and in other circumstances would have let the Queen live. But to forestall rebellion in Naples, he decided it was necessary to have her killed, and is said strangled with a silken cord. Her body was put on display in the marketplace as proof of her death. As Urban VI had communicated Joanna, she could not be consecrated in church property, and so her body was tossed into a deep well on the grounds of Santa Chiara Church. Charles of Durazzo was crowned King of Naples, but the houses of Anjou and France never recognised the authority of the Pope in disallowing the will of Joanna, and so never accepted that they were not the legitimate rulers of Naples, the House of Anjou being the cadet branch of the House of France. The dynastic claims of various European families and the repeated intervention of powers outside Italy, as well as the intervention of the Pope, led to decades of recurring wars of succession in Naples. A major dynastic crisis broke out again in the 1420s when a second Queen Joanna of Naples, also lacking a legitimate heir, felt threatened by her French cousin Louis of Anjou. To protect her crown, she requested military aid from King Alfonso of Aragon, who was ruler of Sicily, and went as far as adopting him as her heir in order to reunite Naples and Sicily and try to ensure an orderly succession. However, Alfonso was impatient and had no intention of waiting until Joanna, the second of Naples, died before claiming his crown, and with the recent possession of the port of Barcelona, had the means to press his claims. He attempted to seize the Neapolitan throne in 1423, in so doing alienating Queen Joanna, who now saw the Aragonese as an even greater threat than her cousins in France. 
to an turn back to the Angevins for support, adopting as her heir Louis of Anjou. Louis successfully wrestled control of the Kingdom of Naples, but he predeceased Joanna, dying a year before the Queen herself, who adopted instead Louis' son. But as before, Alfonso of Aragon, insisting on his rightful claim to Naples, attempted to seize the crown by force. In 1435, Alfonso attempted invasion of the mainland, but he was met by a Genoese navy allied to the House of Anjou, captured in battle and taken as prisoner to the Duchy of Milan. It appeared as if the ambition of the mighty king of Aragon had resulted in his own demise. Instead, Alfonso was able to persuade the Duke of Milan that he had more to fear from the French than from the Aragonese. The French were closer and had dynastic claims on Milan as well. The Duke of Milan was persuaded and allowed Alfonso to rejoin his army and continue the war to claim the Kingdom of Naples. Despite the best efforts of the papacy and the French, Alfonso captured not only the Kingdom of Naples in 1442, but also the island of Sardinia in 1446, becoming the most powerful ruler of the Western Mediterranean. King Alfonso the Magnanimous, as he is known to history, was not only a successful military leader, but a capable ruler who administered his territories in both Spain and Italy effectively and efficiently. In Sicily and southern Italy, he undertook major infrastructure improvements, which benefited the local economies. And passionate as he was about the literature of ancient and Renaissance Italy, he promoted culture and humanism, and had built great works of architecture, most notably the great Gate of Castel Nuovo, which is still an impressive sight today in the city of Naples. But as a foreigner, Alfonso encountered the same type of resistance to his rule from local barons that previous rulers had had to endure, and so was compelled to enforce a strict military regime. Also unfortunately, like other previous rulers, he had no legitimate heir, and the problem arose once again as to who should succeed him. The only solution he saw was to recognise one of his illegitimate sons, and the one that he chose was Ferdinand I, popularly known by the name of Ferrante. Ferrante, on ascending to the throne, realised he faced an extremely difficult situation, would have to battle not only his independent-minded barons, but also the papacy and the House of Anjou. His many opponents were determined to destabilise his rule, leading to further decades of conflict in southern Italy, and ultimately to the fateful invasion of Italy by the French King Charles VIII in 1494. Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. As always, it would be great to hear from you either on the Facebook page or Twitter at History Europe KB, KB for Key Battles, or the blog www.historyeurope.net, or you can write to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. I hope you can join me again next week when I will be talking about Florence and the Medici family. Until then, have a great week and goodbye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.